You're about to hear a radio call of one of the most iconic moments in baseball history. Well, a little while ago, when we mentioned uh, that this one, uh, in typical fashion, was going right to the wire, little did we know. Mark Dittmar throws. Here's a swing and a high fly ball going deep to left. Let's say do it. Back to the wall goes Barra. It is over the fence. Hold on. The Pirates win. The roar of the crowd continues uninterrupted for 35 seconds. Then... Mazeroski has hit a 1-0 pitch over the left field fence at Forbes Field to win the 1960 World Series for the Pittsburgh Pirates by a score of 10-0. Once again, that final score, the Pittsburgh Pirates, the 1960 World Champions, defeat the New York Yankees, the Pirates 10, and the Yankees 9. What you just heard was the radio call of Bill Mazeroski's home run in the bottom of the ninth of Game 7 of the 1960 World Series. Mazeroski's walk-off home run won the game for the Pittsburgh Pirates by a 10-9 score. It also won the series four games to three over the mighty New York Yankees and made the Pirates world champions. The call by broadcaster Chuck Thompson had a couple of problems. Thompson made it sound like the pitch was thrown by Art Dittmar when in fact Ralph Terry was the Yankees pitcher. And after Maz rounded the bases and the crowd roared, Thompson announced the final score as 10-0. Quickly, Thompson gave the correct score of 10-9, but you get an idea of the excitement and drama of that moment. Even a broadcaster as battle-tested as Chuck Thompson got caught up in it. On October 13, 1960, anybody who lived in western Pennsylvania remembers where they were at 3.36 p.m., That's when Mazeroski's home run flew out of Forbes Field and turned the streets of the Steel City into a wild celebration. For 10-year-old Jay Greenberg living in Johnstown, PA, Maz's home run ignited a passion that carried him forward to become one of the best sports writers of our time. Jay attended University of Missouri Journalism School, where I met him, and began his career at the Kansas City Star, where we were colleagues. Jay went on to write for the Philadelphia Bulletin, Philadelphia Daily News, Toronto Sun, Sports Illustrated, and New York Post. He is a media honoree of the Hockey Hall of Fame for his longtime coverage of the NHL, including his 2017 history, the Philadelphia Flyers at 50. A self-described addict of the Pirates, Jay did not hesitate when I asked him to contribute an episode to TCS. His choice of team and season came as no surprise to me. What follows is Jay Greenberg's account of the 1960 Pirates and how they were assembled. Of course, Jay Greenberg remembers where he was when Mazeroski hit his home run. His memory, it turns out, is bittersweet. You hit a sore spot. I was cleaning blackboard erasers. Lived five-minute walk from the school and could just as easily have made it home in time to see it, but I had monitor duty that day. I heard cheering for persons listening on the radio in some classroom or office, and and that was it. I remember being aware somehow they were behind late in the game and walking home later, having to ask Ted Hyman, who lived across the street, how they had rallied. 
Dad was a fan. Mom wasn't much of a disciplinarian, so I'm sure I could have skipped the entire day of school had I appealed or whined to them. I probably thought it was too transparent to just play sick. Of course, I remember everything I learned at school that day, and it had a profound effect on me. Yeah, right. Did I go because I had monitor duty? What a fool. I ended up scarred for life. Jay Greenberg may have been scarred for life, but not too scarred to recount the story of the 1960 Pirates for that championship season. Welcome to That Championship Season, a podcast about famous and or infamous champions and their moment in history. Championships are the stuff of myth, fable, and legend. Every champion has a story, and every season is a story that lives on in memory or in frame. That championship season will take you back to some of the great athletes, teams, and competitors, and bring alive their words and deeds, triumphs and blunders. So pull up your ears for a seat close to the action, and please join me, Steve Morantz, for that championship season. The story of the 1960 Pittsburgh Pirates begins with a front office icon, Wesley Branch Rickey. As general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, Rickey had shown historic courage with his 1947 promotion of Jackie Robinson. But Rickey always had felt breaking the color barrier was inevitable. After new Dodger owner Walter O'Malley forced Rickey to sell his ownership share three years later, his next baseball task seemed even more monumental. When Ricky became GM of the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1950, it had been 25 years since they had last won a World Series, a seven-game triumph over Washington. A sweep at the hands of the 1927 Yankees had been the Pirates' only postseason appearance since. Pittsburgh remained competitive through the 30s, in 1938, they famously collapsed in September and were over, overtaken by the Cubs when Gabby Hartnett hit a game-winning home run at Wrigley Field just before the game was to, to be suspended due to darkness. In 1945, they were purchased by a syndicate headed by real estate horse racing mogul John Galbraith, attorney Dan Johnson, and singer-actor Bing Crosby. In the first five years of that ownership, the Bucks enjoyed only one winning season. When Ricky was brought in, they had sunk to last place in the eight-team National League, 33-and-a-half games out of first. Prior to his time in Brooklyn, Ricky had built the St. Louis Cardinals into a powerhouse with a farm system of unprecedented size. He declared that a similar plan would take five years to make the Pirates successful. But in the meantime, they were doomed to get even worse before they got better. Art was made to imitate life in the 1951 film Angels in the Outfield, set in Pittsburgh, after the Pirates had become the model of a team in need of divine help. In those pre-draft days, when prospects were free to sign with the highest bidder, Ricky put the Pirates' money into collecting young talent. Dick Grote of nearby Wilkinsburg High School was a two-sports star and two-time winner at Duke of NCAA Basketball Player of the Year honors. 
1952, Ricky signed Grote for the then princely sum of $25,000. The following night, he was in the starting lineup for the Pirates at New York's Polo Grounds against the Giants. Pitching prospect Vernon Law of Meridian, Idaho, was in Ricky's crosshairs. Legend has it that a pirate scout knew that Law came from a Mormon family that did not use tobacco and deviously suggested to his rival scouts that they could win over Law's father with cigars. Meanwhile, the pirate scout brought chocolate for Mrs. Law. Whether or not that story is apocryphal, more verifiable is that Branch Rickey, a deeply religious Christian, won over the laws with a devout promise he would take care of their son. A call from the crooner-slash-owner Bing Crosby sealed the deal. Bob Friend, the son of an Indiana orchestra leader, signed to play both quarterback and pitcher at Purdue University until he injured his left shoulder. Thereafter, he stuck to pitching and took a Pirates bonus offer. Bill Mazeroski, the sure-handed son of a West Virginia coal miner, grew up in a house without electricity and paid for his first baseball glove by digging a hole for an outhouse. He signed as a shortstop out of one of Ricky's mass tryout camps for $4,000. Bob Skinner was a left-handed hitting, right-hand throwing outfielder from La Jolla, California. His nickname was The Dog, and certainly at 6'4", Skinner had the lanky look of a greyhound. By contrast, Elroy Face was a mutt, a five-foot-eight pitcher whom Ricky drafted twice, once from the Philadelphia Organization for Brooklyn and then from the Dodgers to the Pirates. Face, who brought his hands high over his head to the set position, appeared to need every one of his 155 pounds to get the ball as far as home plate. Urged by Ricky to learn an off-speed pitch, Face tried a forkball, the forerunner of the split-fingered fastball. He perfected it by comparing notes with Joe Page, the former all-star Yankee reliever whose final major league stop was a short one in Pittsburgh. California-born Dick Stewart was a slugging first baseman with such a terrible glove that a minor league record 66 homer season in 1957 with Pittsburgh's Lincoln, Nebraska Farm Club did not earn him a promotion out of Class A the next season. Though by the early 50s, multiple black players had joined Robinson making an impact in the majors, the Pirates oddly ignored the opportunity to accelerate their rebuild with players of color. Two of the most successful Negro League teams, the Homestead Grays and Pittsburgh Crawfords, had been based in Pittsburgh in the 30s and 40s, and a prominent African-American newspaper, the Pittsburgh Courier, was a staunch campaigner for integration. Pirates' attendance had dipped below 500,000 in the early 50s, and the team badly needed talent and drawing cards. But despite Ricky's history with Robinson and the Dodgers, Pittsburgh still was one of the last teams to bring a player of color onto the field. In 1954, Seven years after Jackie Robinson's debut, the Bucks promoted Kurt Roberts, a good-glove, no-hit second baseman. He was struggling to establish himself when, at the end of the season, the last-place Pirates used the first pick in the Rule 5 draft to take from Brooklyn a Puerto Rican outfielder named Roberto Clemente. That draft was designed to keep the talent-rich organizations from hoarding players in the minor leagues 
at the expense of losers who could use them. Legend has it that the Dodgers played Clemente only 87 games at AAA Montreal in 1954 to hide his exceptional talent. In truth, the undisciplined swinger's struggles against right-handed pitching had at least something to do with his limited playing time. In his rookie year, 1955, Clemente hit 255 and the Pirates finished last for the fourth straight season. For health reasons, Ricky stepped upstairs to the role of chairman and recommended the promotion of 37-year-old Joel Brown, the general manager of the Pirates' AAA Farm Club in New Orleans. Joel Brown was a graduate of UCLA and the son of comedian and baseball aficionado Joe E. Brown. The son of a comedian now ran the Pirates. Pick your punchline. But nobody laughed at Brown after his first major move early in the 56 season. He traded a journeyman pitcher and a prospect to St. Louis for center fielder Bill Verdon, the reigning National League Rookie of the Year. Nicknamed the Quail for his flying feet and ability to fist inside pitches into soft singles, Verdon led off and hit 334 in the 113 games following the trade. With other young players maturing, the Pirates won 66 games and escaped last place. But in 1957, the Bucks were 36 and 67 when Brown fired manager Bobby Bregan and promoted coach Danny Murtaugh. Murtaugh, former second baseman with the Phillies and Pirates, whose beverage of choice was milk, quickly proved a welcome contrast to the blunt and contentious Bregan. Groat, Skinner, and Mazeroski had felt the lash of Bregan's tongue and harsh judgments. Murtaugh gave all three votes of confidence and secure spots in the lineup. As the Pirates' young rotation struggled, Face had not been used exclusively in relief. He was scheduled for a start on Murtaugh's first day on the job, but the new boss canceled it. Murtaugh told the Pirates, I don't want you to respect me just because I'm the manager. I want to earn your respect. And he did, almost instantaneously. Pirates were 26-25 the rest of the 57 season. They did even better in 1958 and finished second, eight games behind Milwaukee. Fans began to return to Forbes Field, the 1909 Vintage Park located in the Cultural University and Hospital-centered Oakland section of the city, four miles from downtown. Attendance jumped by 451,000 to 1.3 million in 1958. Skinner hit 321, Grote 300, Friend won 22 games and Law 14. Clemente gradually tamed his wild swing raised his average 34 points to 289 and became a rising star. Stewart broke into the majors with 16 homers in just 67 games. Third baseman Frank Thomas, like Grote, a Pittsburgh native, had the best year of his five in the majors, 35 home runs and 109 RBIs. But Brown wasn't about to sit pat. After the 58 season, he traded the popular hometown slugger Thomas to Cincinnati for third baseman Don Hoke, catcher Forrest Harrell Smokey Burgess, and pitcher Harvey Haddix. The pot-bellied Burgess gave the Pirates a left-handed bat and a more well-rounded catcher, both figuratively and literally. The diminutive Haddix was a curveball and control specialist. 
Tiger Hope was a gritty ex-Marine and firebrand leader with a good on-base percentage and a better glove than Thomas's. Brown also supplemented the free-swinging Stewart by scavenging 35-year-old lefty first baseman Rocky Nelson from the minor league draft. Nelson had failed to stick in five major league trials, including one with Pittsburgh over 11 years. The Pirates were expected to challenge mighty Milwaukee for the 1959 pennant, but they were recovering from an 06 start when there was dramatic historic evidence that karma was not on their side that season. On May 26th, Haddix threw 12 perfect innings in Milwaukee, while counterpart Lou Burdett scattered 12 Pittsburgh hits. Finally, Hoke made an error in the 13th. Joe Adcock hit the ball over the fence, and Haddix lost, lost the greatest game ever pitched. A slew of injuries dogged the Pirates in 1959, and they finished in fourth place at 78-76. As a result... A lot of the same writers who picked the Pirates to win the pennant in 59 suffered amnesia while making their prognostications for 1960. Murtaugh tried to set them straight at the Pirates' spring camp in Fort Myers, Florida. Said Murtaugh, We don't expect guys like Friends, Skinner, Mazeroski, and Grote to have two bad years in a row. Dick Young of the New York Daily News bought that logic and was the only writer of reputation to pick the Buckos to bounce back all the way to first place. The Sporting News had them fifth, but so complete was Murtaugh's faith that he argued with Brown against trading Grote to Kansas City for outfielder Roger Maris. The GM relented on that one, but made another deal with KC, trading backup catcher Hank Foyles to the A's for Hal Smith, an improved platoon option to the lefty swinging Burgess. Verdon, too, had struggled against southpaws, so Brown dealt starter Ronnie Klein for center fielder Gino Simoli. Murtaugh now could go righty-lefty at catcher, first base, and center field. The Pirates lost the 1960 opener in Milwaukee when their nemesis, Joe Adcock, homered off friend in the eighth and again off face in the ninth. Two days later, they bounced back to win their Forbes Field opener 13-0 over Cincinnati behind Law's seven-hit complete game. During that first weekend, Friends shut out the Reds 5-0 to open a Sunday doubleheader. In the second game, they debuted the never-say-die character that came to define the 1960 Pirates. They were down 5-0 in the bottom of the ninth and seemingly destined for a split until with one out, Burgess, Verdon, and Mazeroski stroked singles to center to break the shutout. Smith hit a three-run homer, and suddenly Pittsburgh was within 5-4. Hoke grounded into the second out, but Grote poked a two-out single to keep the Pirates alive before Skinner blasted a ball that caromed off the iron rod supporting the screen above the short right field and into the stands. Skinner's walk-off home run gave the Pirates an astounding and exhilarating 6-5 victory. Said Clemente, Doggy hit it so hard it had to bend the bar. Years later, Grote reflected, that was the game that made us believe. As their season unfolded, they became ever more tough and resilient in the late innings, a team that never died. 
May 5th, Verdon hit a two-out triple in the ninth to produce a 9-7 win at Wrigley. May 15th, in Milwaukee, Clemente's two-out triple in the ninth beat the Braves 6-4. May 20th, against the Giants at home, a Groats single to tie in the 12th was followed by a Clemente hit for another improbable win 5-4. Crowed play-by-play broadcaster Bob Prince, we had him all the way. Indeed, these bucks never were out of it. On May 22nd, Skinner hit another ninth-inning homer to tie the Giants before Smith's hit won the game 8-7 and 11. May 28th, a two-run homer by Hoke in the 13th beat the Phillies 4-2. That same day, Brown made a trade. He dealt a prized second-base prospect, Julian Javier, to St. Louis for left-hander Wilmer Vinegar Ben Mizell. Vinegar Ben Mizell's nickname came from the Alabama town of his birth, population 192, which would have fit into about four rows of increasingly precious seats at Forbes Field. On Memorial Day, 34,000 packed in to watch the Pirates clobber the great Warren Spawn with a four-run first on the way to an 8-3 win that put Pittsburgh in the National League lead by a half game. The following night, Mizell faltered in the ninth in his first Pittsburgh start, but Clemente rode to the rescue with an 11th inning RBI to beat the Reds 4-3 for face. On June 18th in Los Angeles, the Pirates were down 3-0 in the ninth until Smith hit a two-run homer, Hoke walked, and Burgess tied the game with a two-out hit. Thanks again to Smith, who scored Clemente with a 10th inning single, the Buckos had him all the way, 4-3. On June 21st against the Dodgers, the Pirates were down 3-2 in the bottom of the 10th when reserve outfielder Joe Christopher doubled with one out. He was singled home by Clemente, who then scored the winner all the way from first on a bloop single by Stewart. Such was a typical Bucko barrage. Nine timely hits without a single home run. But the Pirates were the perfect product of their 51-year-old ballpark with cavernous outfield distances of 457 in left center and 436 in right center. The foul pole in right was only 300 feet from home plate, but even there, a 100-foot-high screen foiled cheap home runs. The infield was rock-hard, celebrated by broadcaster Bob Prince as Alabaster Plaster. Ground balls exploded into the magically quick hands of Mazeroski and helped the Pirates turn the most double plays in the league. The hard surface also worked for Grote as he smacked ground balls through holes created by Verdon breaking on the pitch. No game was wilder than the one July 5th at Milwaukee. The Braves' Carlton Willie carried a two-hit shutout into the ninth when Nelson hit a solo homer and Hoke a two-run blast to put Pittsburgh ahead 3-2. to two. When Face struggled to put it away, Murtaugh went to rookie Joe Gibbon. The tying run scored on Del Crandall's two-out, bases-loaded ground ball to left, but Skinner threw out the potential winning run at the plate. In the 10th, Nelson hit his second homer a two-run job. When the Braves rallied again to cut the lead to 5-4, Murtaugh called on Friend, who secured the final out. Had him all the way, of course. 
Two nights later, Skinner's two-run ninth-inning double beat the Reds 3-2. On July 16th, Cincinnati was foiled again on Hoke's two-run single with two outs in the eighth and Stewart's pinch-hit homer in the ninth. By now, fans knew not to leave early to beat the traffic from what Bob Prince called the House of Thrills. Then the Pirates stumbled. On July 24th, they fell into a tie with Milwaukee when rookie starter Tom Chaney got knocked around in a 6-3 loss at San Francisco. It was then that men and women of a certain age in Pittsburgh recalled the collapse of 1938. They had only to look up at a tangible monument of that heartbreak and auxiliary press box that was hanging from the third base upper deck. It had been built in anticipation of a World Series that was played instead in Chicago. But that was ancient history to Bob Friend, who won in St. Louis 4-2 to put the Pirates ahead by a half game on July 25th. With seven straight victories in early August, the Bucks began to pull away, and there wasn't enough mercury in thermometers in Pittsburgh to measure its pennant fever. Under Pennsylvania law, beer sales were not allowed at Forbes Field. The place didn't even have an organ. But Benny Benack's Iron City Six, dressed in ragtime outfits topped off by bowlers, walked the aisles like troubadours. Unfortunately, on nights Benny and his minstrels showed up, the Pirates lost more than they won. Said Clemente, they are a jinx. So the band was relegated to a stand outside the park on Senate Street. In late August, a 14-game, five-city trip was the last obstacle for the Pirates. They went 8-6 and six on the trip and returned home with a seven-game lead. National League President Warren Giles gave them the go-ahead to print World Series tickets. Their resolve was tested on September 6th when Grote leaned over the plate to pull a Luberdet pitch. It rode in and fractured the wrist of the batter with the highest average in the National League. When Brown had considered trading Grote for Maris the previous summer, it was in the belief that backup Dick Schofield could handle the job on an everyday basis. Now the GM would find out. Business as usual. Schofield went 3-for-3 three three the rest of that game. The Pirates, stung by a three-run Braves eighth, scored three of their own in the bottom of the inning to come from behind again 5-3. to three. Law notched number 20 when he beat Cincinnati 5-3 in the first game of a September 18th doubleheader. Mizell won his 12th in the nightcap, making a Schofield second-inning RBI double stand up for the only run in a complete game three-hitter. The lead was six over St. Louis with 11 games to play, at which point Don Hoke declared, the National League is dead. A 5-4 loss by the Cardinals in Chicago on September 24th, while the Pirates were losing in Milwaukee 4-2, to 
reduced the magic number to just one. The next day, Clemente was leading off the top of the seventh, Pirates leading one zip, when he heard a commotion in the dugout. The Cubs had beaten the Cardinals. The Pirates were National League champions for the first time in 33 years. Clemente asked the dugout, we win? Then stepped back in. He celebrated by smacking the next pitch into center and then scored on a Smith double. The Braves rallied for two runs off Haddocks in the eighth before Eddie Matthews beat face with a homer in the tenth. The loss dropped the Bucks to 92-58, and 58, but it wasn't exactly a funeral march to the clubhouse. Murtaugh gave tacit approval to celebrate by declaring, any team that has 92 wins doesn't back into the pennant. Champagne was uncorked. Simoli, the team jokester, stole the hat of Pittsburgh Press beat reporter Les Biederman, doused it in bubbly, and wore it into the shower. The clubhouse floor became so soaked that Law slipped and turned an ankle. Ironically, Law was a teetotaler. Back in Pittsburgh, fans thronged the streets. A fan climbed the statue of Honus Wagner, the greatest pirate in history, to shout in his ear about the blessed event. In popular Weinstein's restaurant in the Squirrel Hill section, Diners broke out in applause, and a waiter dropped a tray of soup bowls which smashed on the floor. Said the restaurant manager, On another day, we would have charged him. Waiting for the pirate charter to arrive at Pittsburgh International Airport were 1,500 celebrants, including Pennsylvania Governor and former Pittsburgh Mayor David Lawrence, plus current Mayor Joseph Barr. Fans converged on the team bus before it made its way downtown through the Fort Pitt Tunnel, where players were put in convertibles for a torchlight parade. It featured floats, plus Cardinals and Braves dummies hanging from nooses. Signs implored the Pirates to beat the Yankees, who that same day had clinched their ninth American League pennant in 11 years. The World Series would make the Pirates host to a celebration of not only the rebirth of the baseball team, but a window for the nation into the ongoing rejuvenation of the 16th largest city in the United States. Pittsburgh had been so polluted from steel manufacturing and heavy industry that in the 30s and 40s, downtown streetlights were illuminated during daylight hours. Beginning in 1950, 130 warehouses and industrial sites had been raised near the confluence of the Allegheny, Monongahela, and Ohio rivers. The banks were enlarged, and a grassy park fronted new office towers and a hotel. This rechristened Golden Triangle had become the symbol of an unprecedented urban renewal. The downtown crowd was estimated by police at anywhere from 100,000 to 500,000. Marveled owner John Galbraith, Can you imagine this, and on a Sunday night, too? Said Burgess, wouldn't it be nice if all these people could come to the World Series? With the World Series just ahead, Dick Grote talked team doctor Joe Feingold into taking the cast off two weeks early and was delighted to learn that his wrist had healed ahead of schedule. Even though Grote led the Dodgers' Norm Larker in the batting race by less than a percentage point going into the final weekend, 
He wanted to play in order to work the rust off. In the final two games, he went two for five against Spawn and one for four against Burdett. Grote finished at 325 and became only the second shortstop in history to win a batting title. The Pirates' 34 stolen bases were the fewest in the National League. They also were last in walks. Stewart, with 23 homers, was their only batter to hit 20, and Clemente led the team in runs batted in with 94. But Pittsburgh's 276 team batting average was best in the National League by a whopping 11 points. They were shut out only four times. As Brown would say years later, I never saw a team get more out of its ability. Law's 20 wins would earn him the Cy Young Award. Fran had bounced back to win 18 games. Mizell proved a godsend with 13 victories, and Haddock's had 11. Face had 24 saves, and Pittsburgh's 2.83 ERA was the league's best. All that said, there wasn't a lineup in the National League that could match the Yankees. The addition of Maris added 39 home runs to 40 hit by Mantle. First baseman Bill Scourn hit 26. As a team, the Bronx Bombers hit a Major League record 193 homers, 53 more than the National League leader Cincinnati. These numbers hardly deterred Pittsburgh fans. The night before Game 1, crowds dressed as pirates, the swashbuckling seagoing kind, gathered in the lobby of the Yankees Hotel to sing, The Bucks Are Going All The Way. According to one of the minstrels, the intention was to keep the Yankees up all night. The Pirates had outdrawn the Yankees, the biggest brand in baseball, by 178,000 fans in 1960, even though the Yankees now had the Big Apple to itself. But could the Pirates convert that enthusiasm into results? That was the question. Legend had it that the last time the Pirates had gotten this far, in 1927, they had been intimidated watching the Yankees' murderer's row take batting practice. The Bucks had gone down meekly in four straight in 27. Now the Pirates were back on the big stage, facing the Bombers. In Game 1, Maris hit a home run off Law in the top of the first to immediately stoke the worst of fears. But the Buccos didn't blink. With Yankee manager Casey Stingle starting Art Dittmar rather than World Series legend Whitey Ford, the Pirates went right to work. Verdon walked to lead off. Verdon had struggled with a hamstring pull down the stretch and had been cautious on base paths, which Yankee scouts had noted. Verdon thought Grote gave him the sign for their pat patented hit and run and broke for second, but Grote had not. So he took the pitch while neither shortstop Tony Kubak or second baseman Bobby Richardson covered the bag. Yogi Berra's throw went into center field and Verdon continued to third. Grote's hand was killing him, but he smacked a double down the right field line to get Pittsburgh even and then scored on a hit by Skinner. He, in turn, was plated on Clemente's hit. So much for stage fright. Four of the first... Five Pittsburgh batters had reached first, and three runs were in. Stingle yanked Dittmar, and after Barra and Scourin both hit safely to lead off the second, the manager also pinch hit Dale Long for Cleet Boyer.
Law induced a fly out to Clemente, and when Bobby Richardson smashed to left was run down by the incoming Skinner, Barra had misjudged the trajectory and was doubled off second. Law was back in trouble in the fourth when Maris led off with a single and Mantle walked. Moose Scourn plated Maris with a single and Barra hit a fearsome shot to right center. Verdon raced almost to the ivy-covered wall, barely avoided Clemente, and snagged the ball. Scourn followed with a big hit to score Maris, but the Verdon catch had saved a big inning and the Pirates still led 3-2. They immediately lengthened it in the bottom of the inning when Hoke walked and Mazeroski homered over the left field scoreboard to make it 5-2. Verdon made it 6-2 in the sixth with a double to drive in Mazeroski. When Skinner was hit on the wrist by a Ryan Dern pitch in the seventh, the left fielder had to be replaced by Simoli to start the eighth. When Hector Lopez and Maris singled with nobody out, Face strolled in to face Mantle. Little Elroy admitted, I had butterflies, but he could have fooled the Mick and Scourin, both of whom struck out, and Barra, who flied out. In the ninth, a two-run homer by Elston Howard scored Richardson to cut the lead to two runs. Kubek followed with a single, but Face's forkball to Lopez produced a double-play grounder to Mazeroski, and the Pirates had won Game 1, 6-4. In Game 2, Bob Friend blanked the Yankees through two innings, but to start the third, Richardson walked, was sacrificed, and scored on a single by Kubek. Kubek then was chased home by a Gil McDougal double. Yankee starter Bob Turley singled in Richardson in the fourth to make it 3-0. So when consecutive hits by Simoli, Burgess, and Hoke got the Pirates on the board and put the tying run on base, Murtaugh made a move to get back in the game. Gene Baker pinch hit for friend, but he popped up and Turley wriggled off the hook. The Bombers immediately went to work against Southpaw reliever Fred Green. He walked his first batter, then gave up a mantle homer to make it 5-1. The Yankees ran roughshod over three Pirate relievers during a seven-run sixth inning to put the game hopelessly out of reach. In the seventh, Mantle became the first right-handed batter to clear the 436 mark in right center with a three-run shot off lefty Joe Gibbon to make the score 15 to 1. It was 16 to 1 in the ninth when RBI hits by Simoli and Burgess ended Turley's bid for a complete game. Bobby Chance got the last out in a 16 to 3 route that placed these two teams in intimidating contrast. The combined distance of Pittsburgh 13 hits seemingly had not equaled the length of two prodigious mantle clouts. So the Yankees had gotten a split, and they had Ford making his record 13th World Series start ready for Game 3 at Yankee Stadium. Stengel sat Barra and started the right-handed hitting Bob Serve in right against Mizell. The move paid off instantly with Serve's leadoff hit. Mano and Scourin singled to produce a run. After a walk to McDougal, Murtaugh had already seen enough of Mizell and went to Clem Labine, 
a 34-year-old late-season signee who had been a veteran of Dodger World Series wars against the Yankees. Howard beat out a dribbler to get, an, get another run home. That kept the bases loaded for Richardson, who sent a drive down the left field line 10 feet inside the foul pole and five rows deep. Richardson had hit the seventh Grand Slam in World Series history to give New York a 6-0 first inning lead. In the fourth, Mantle hit a two-run shot into the bullpen in right center. Richardson then singled in two more, becoming the first player ever to have six RBIs in a World Series game. Ford scattered four Pittsburgh hits in a complete game 10-0 victory. Outscored 26-3 in the last two games, the Pirates were seemingly down a lot worse than two games to one. They were now a 5-1 to one shot to win the series, and United Press International reported that many bookies had stopped taking bets. In Sports Illustrated, Roy Terrell wrote, Pity for the Pirates was the predominant emotion. Yankee staffers canceled plans to acknowledge Murtaugh's 43rd birthday on the scoreboard out of concern it would be taken as a mockery. Joke the birthday boy. The way things turned out, I don't feel any younger. Murtaugh did not, however, cancel plans to take in the Broadway smash My Fair Lady that night with his wife Kate. The Pirates had their ace Vernon Law going in game four. Two batters in, Serve had singled and gone to third on a Kubek double. Maris's fly ball to right wasn't deep enough for third base coach Frank Crossetti to test Clemente's cannon. So with two Yankees in scoring position and a base open, Murtaugh had his choice of the hemlock, Mantle, or the strychnine, Barra, who had 59 career World Series hits. The manager ordered Mantle walked. Barra swung over a law curve and tapped the ball to third. Hoke stepped on the bag for the second out and took the one chance he had for another at first. Umpire Dusty Bodges' emphatic call was out as the outraged Barra got up in his face. In the days before instant replay, the human eye was overmatched by this closest of plays, but a slow-motion shot in the official World Series film released months later, showed the Pirates had received a desperately needed break. The game was still scoreless. Reprieved, loss settled in, matching Yankee starter Ralph Terry into a scoreless fourth when Scourin hit a solo one-out homer. But Samoli, who got his third straight start in left due to Skinner's jam thumb, led off the fifth with the Pirates' first hit, a solid single to center. Burgess topped the ball to Scourin, who charged, turned, and took a shot at forcing Samoli at second. The throw may or may not have pulled Kubek off the second base bag. Regardless, the World Series film later confirmed a tie that correctly went to the runner. The Pirates, on the verge of being blown out in the series, suddenly were in business. Or so it seemed until Hoke blooped a bun attempt into Richardson's glove and Mazeroski popped up too. The rally was about to fizzle because the next batter was pitcher Vern Law, 
who had a scant five hits on the year. Then Loss smacked the ball fair inside third. Serve played the carom correctly off the curved shallow fence as Hoke scored easily. Burgess made it to third and Law to second without a throw. With their first run in 12 innings, the Pirates had tied the game, and then Verdon untied it, dropping a soft single in the center that chased home Hoke and Law with a 3-1 Pittsburgh lead at a suddenly silent Yankee Stadium. Bottom of the fifth, Richardson singled to lead off, but Terry failed to get down a bunt and struck out, as did Servan Kubek to complete a huge shutdown inning for Law. He had another one in the sixth when Maris Mantle and Barra went down on two ground balls and a soft fly. In the seventh, leadoff batter Scourin bounced a double into the right field stands. McDougald's single got Scourin only to third, but he scored when Richardson hit a roller towards the second base bag. Mazeroski stepped on second for the force, threw to first, and pulled Stewart off the bag, botching the double play and leaving the tying run on base in what was now a 3-2 game. When pinch hitter John Blanchard bounced a single to right, moving McDougal to second, Murtaugh deemed Law out of gas. On came Elroy to face serve, who blasted a ball to deep right center, a home run in practically any park but the two sites of this series. Verdon was off with a crack of the bat, misjudged the flight slightly, and started to jump, but the ball came down eye-high into his glove. Richardson went to third after the catch, but Kubek grounded back to face to end the inning, and by virtue of Verdon's second rally-killing catch of the series, the Pirates had escaped the seventh ahead by a run. Maris, Mantle, and Barra went down 1-2-3 in the eighth, with Mantle swinging over a forkball for strike three. In the ninth, Hoke dove to save a scouring leadoff double, scrambled to his feet, and threw out the runner by three steps. It was the defensive play of the series, even better than those catches by Verdon. McDougald lined a groat for the second out, and Clemente camped under pinch hitter Long's lazy fly ball, making his trademark nonchalant basket catch. For the Pirates, a gut-wrenching 3-2 squeaker, even the most lopsided series in World Series history at an improbable two wins apiece. Law in the first and Face in the eighth had dodged Yankee cannonballs. Face was asked whether coming into a two-on, one-out seventh in a one-run World Series game in Yankee Stadium was the most pressure he had ever felt. Face replied, No, I've come in with bases loaded and nobody out. Photographers pled again and again for Verdon and Law to kiss face on the cheek. They complied. If those guys kiss me one more time, I'm liable to kiss them back, said Elroy. There was no kissing required on stage at the Ed Sullivan show that night. Face just smiled in his cameo appearance. In Game 5, starter Haddock survived a hoke throwing error in the first by striking out Scourin with two on. The Pirates went to work in the top of the second. Stewart singled and was forced at second, but Burgess doubled to the right field corner, putting runners on second and third. The Yankees played the infield back to concede a run when Hoke grounded the ball to short. Kubek tried to erase Burgess at third, but McDougal, 
McDougald appeared surprised and dropped the ball. McDougald eagerly awaited the next chance, a perfect double play ball hit by Mazeroski, but the Yankee third baseman sagged in disbelief when it hopped over his head down the left field line for a double that gave the Pirates a 3-0 lead. For the second time in the series, Stingle put out the short hook for Dittmar, and the Yankees got on the board at 3-1 when Howard doubled and came around on two groundouts. But the Pirates got that run back off Louis Arroyo with a Grote double and a Clemente single. Maris hit a solo home run in the bottom of the fourth to cut Pittsburgh's lead to 4-2. But Haddock's curveball and pinpoint control allowed the Yankees only one base runner on a Grote error in the middle three innings. To start the seventh, Richardson made good contact on a line out to Hoke. When Kubek and Howard followed with singles, Murtaugh called again for Face, who got McDougal to ground into a force and then struck out Maris with a diving forkball. When third base coach Crossetti saw Face grip the ball between his middle and fourth fingers, he tried to tip off the Yankees' batters by shouting, Here it comes! So Hoke started yelling to drown Crossetti out. Said Hoke, they weren't hitting it anyway. Pinch hitter John Blanchard's fly ball to the warning track settled into Clemente's basket catch for the final out of a 1-2-3 ninth. Haddocks and Face had made the 5-2 Pittsburgh win seem routine, but the context of it was mind-blowing. After blowout losses in games 2 and 3, the Pirates were going home for Game 6, one win from the championship. Stengel had told reporters before Game 5 that if the Yankees won it, Turley would get the call for Game 6. But suddenly facing elimination, there was no saving Ford. The baseball gods seemed to agree with the decision. In the second, the pitcher topped a swinging bunt single with the bases loaded to put New York ahead 1-0. Friend, who had gotten an early hook in Game 2, fared even worse this time. He hit Kubek with a pitch to start the third and then gave up a Maris double. Both runners scored on Mantle's ground ball single up the middle. When Barra followed with a hit, Murtaugh yanked Friend. Against rookie Tom Shaney, Scourin hit a sacrifice fly, and then Richardson tripled in two more runs his series record 10th and 11th RBIs to build the lead to 6-0. The Yankees clubbed Labine for four more runs. Ford's slider induced 17 pirate ground balls and three double plays. Despite the rout, Stengel decided not to save an inning or two in his ace's arm for an all-hands-on-deck Game 7. Ford went all the way in a 12-0 shutout that evened the series at 3. Said Verdon, we had a lot of good exercise chasing those balls in the outfield today. It will loosen us up for tomorrow. Through six games, the Yankees had scored 46 runs to the Pirates' 16, batted a collective 341, and had eight home runs to Pittsburgh's one. Presented all this evidence, Murtaugh said, if I'm not mistaken, the score is 3-3. The Pirates were unbowed by the third Yankee blowout. Management ordered two truckloads of champagne and beer for the home clubhouse the following day. Said Clemente, We played like a minor league team, but Law is pitching, and I think we'll beat those Yankees. 
Law's ankle was sore, but he was ready to go on a standard three days rest. Stengel had a choice of the veteran Turley, who had breezed in game two, or rookie Bill Stafford, a starter who had allowed only one hit in six innings of series relief. An hour before the game, Turley found a ball in his shoe, which was Stengel's way of declaring his choice. In his 12th year as Yankee manager, it was a ritual he might perform for the last time, with speculation that the folksy and Quixotic old professor would hang up his spikes following the series, 35 New York writers signed a petition asking him to stay as long as his health permitted. Casey called the gesture wonderful, but added, I've been here for 12 years, and when a feller stays so long in one place, he gets a lot of people mad at him, and he gets mad at a lot of people when they blame him for blowing tight games. Now Murtaugh had Skinner in the lineup for the first time since game one. Skinner walked with two outs in the first before Nelson hit one far over the screen and right for a 2-0 Pittsburgh lead. When Burgess led off the second with a single, Stengel used a quick hook on Turley. He went to Stafford, who loaded the bases on a hook walk and Mazeroski single, and then induced a double play from Law. That seemed to relieve the pressure, but only until Verdon dumped one into center, two runs scored, and the Pirates led 4-0. Murtaugh had told writers he would not ask much more than five innings from Law because Face was rested after the Game 6 blowout and a travel day. Through four innings, the Deacon used the sharp breaking curve out of a no-wind-up delivery to hold the Yankees to two hits. After scouring Homer to lead off the fifth, Law set down the next three to preserve a 4-1 lead. Since the third inning, veteran lefty curveballer Bobby Chance had more than matched Law. Thanks to Chance, the Yankees were still down only three runs as Law went out for the sixth. Richardson led off with a line drive single. When Kubek walked, Murtaugh called for face and Law exited to a standing ovation. Maris popped out foul to Hoke, but Mantle grounded a single to center to make it 4-2 to two and put the tying runs on base for Barra, arguably the best postseason hitter in history. Mantle on first. One out. There's a drive hit deep to right field, but it is going to go foul. Now the play in it is all the way, excuse me, all the way for a home run. Tomani never moved over. And we thought the ball was curving foul as a home run for Yogi Berra. Berra lofted the ball deep to right, so close to the foul pole that Mel Allen, the great Yankee voice who was on play-by-play -play duties on NBC TV, called it foul. But halfway down the line, Berra knew otherwise. He leaped into the air as the ball dropped into the second deck. The Yankees led 5-4. The only sound in Forbes Field was from the Yankees' brass seated behind their dugout. Face got the last two outs in the sixth and then threw a scoreless seventh. In the eighth, Elroy got Maris on a ground out and Mantle on a line out. But Barra walked, Scourin singled, Blanchard drove in Barra with a single, and Boyer scored Scourin with a double.
the Yankees had finally gotten to face and now led 7-4. to four. The Pirates appeared not only out of karma, but singles, too. Their only hit since the second inning, by Burgess to lead off the seventh, had been erased when Mazeroski hit into a double play. But in the year of never being out of it, the diehards nevertheless stirred with encouragement as Simoli batted for face to lead off the bottom of the eighth. After a steady diet of off-speed stuff, Simoli got a fastball and blooped it safely into right field in front of Maris. Next came a pivotal moment of Game 7. Verdon hit a hard ground ball at Kubek for what appeared to be a tailor-made double play, except that the devilish alabaster infield had another idea. Runner at first base, Gino Savoli, to say the least. Cowan holds him tight to the bag to set the pitch. Swinging a ground ball, hit right toward the shortstop. Oh, it hit Kubek in the face. It hit him in the face, and Kubek has been hurt, and all hands are safe. A bad hop ground ball came up and hit him in the face and bounced away, and all hands are safe, and time has been called here at Forbes Field while Yankee teammates rush along with the trainers to see if they can assist Kubek. The ball hit a spike mark and accelerated into Kubek's throat before he could raise his glove to protect himself. Kubek collapsed on the field. Richardson came over to pick up the ball and called time. Stengel and trainer Gus Mock raced to Kubek, who sat up and clutched his throat with blood coming from both sides of his mouth. He pantomimed a desire to stay in, but the manager subbed in Joe DeMaestri. Like everybody in the park, the Pirates had trouble looking at the distressed Kubek. But the kind of break they had taken advantage of all season had found them once again. Suddenly the tying run was up, with nobody out, and all things were possible. Groat was up. A predominantly opposite field hitter, he had had no success going the other way in two previous at-bats against Chance's breaking curve. So this time the Pirate captain wanted to pull the ball, and he did just that, between second and third, to score Simoli and move Verdon to second, still with nobody out, and the score now 7-5. to five. Three straight hits had convinced Stingle that after five-plus innings, Chance was tired. Even though he was arguably the best fielding pitcher in the game, and Murto almost certainly was going to command Skinner to sacrifice Verdon and Groat up a base, Stingle went to Jim Coates. When Skinner did bunt, Coates fielded it cleanly and threw him out as the runners moved to second and third. Nelson lofted a ball to right, but not nearly deep enough to test Maris's arm. Now there were two outs, leaving Clemente, hitting 285 in the series at the plate, trying to reignite a rally fast being doused. He fouled off a high fastball, bringing Stingle running to the mound to scold Coates to keep the ball down. The pitcher did, and Clemente fouled off that one too before taking a waste pitch. The next pitch was also off the plate. Clemente appeared fooled and lunged, not an uncommon sight. His bat was so quick and his forearms so strong that base hits, even occasionally home runs, had resulted from swings with his butt seemingly halfway to the third base dugout. This time, he topped the ball perfectly into a no-man's land to the left of the mound. By breaking first for the ball, 
Coates lost all chance to beat the fleet Clemeni to the base, and there was no play for Scourin anywhere. Verdon scored, Gross, Grote was at third, and Clemeni at first in a now 7-6 game. The batter was Hal Smith, who had entered the game when Burgess had been lifted for a pinch runner in the seventh. Smith, a journeyman 30-year-old who once had been a Yankee farmhand, had produced his proportionate share of pirate late-inning hits, making him as dangerous as almost anybody they could put up in this, the situation of a lifetime. He watched a strike, then a ball way high and outside, before taking a monster swing and miss, said Chuck Thompson, the NBC radio play-by-play -play man, Smith went for, quote, the Sunday punch and couldn't find it. He had one swing left. On the one-two delivery, he started to take it, extending his arms, but not breaking his wrists well over the plate until jerking the bat back. All breath left Forbes Field, and the Pittsburgh dugout froze waiting for home plate umpire Bill Joukowsky to rule. By today's standards, Smith had swung, but Joukowsky said no, and the appeal to the first and third base umpires on check swings was not yet part of the game. Relief washed over the stadium, lasting only until catcher Howard put out the next sign. Chuck Thompson had the radio call. And Coates into the stretch. He sets, and the 2-2 to Smith. He swings a long fly ball deep to left field. I don't know, it might go out of here. It is going, going, going. With each going, going, the prayers of 36,383 fans were answered. The gone was perfectly timed to the explosion of joy. Decades later, men of a certain age in Pittsburgh cannot hear that call without goosebumps and tears every single time. There had been nothing questionable about it. Smith's epic blast had cleared the fence near the 406 sign by a good 30 feet and yet it still seemed too good to be true. Grote leaped on home plate. Clemente clapped all the way down the third baseline. Smith rounded first and saw the ball disappear and later remembered thinking, oh boy, this is really something. Thompson, working alone, let the roar be his color man until Smith touched the plate, putting Pittsburgh up 9-7. Then he found his voice. Ralph Terry replaced Coates on the mound and got Hoke to sky to Barra for the final out before a roar went up again. The Pirates were three outs away from the championship. But who can Murtaugh trust to get three outs? Face already had been used and every other option in the bullpen had been hammered during three Yankee routes. Murtaugh went to Bobby Friend as if this odyssey of a game and a series needed one more storyline Friend had been clobbered in his two series starts. Now he was offered redemption. But Richardson led off with a single to left. Pinch hitter Dale Long lined a 1-1 pitch in front of Clemente, and euphoria had turned into anxiety. 
Friend looked devastated as he left the mound, replaced by another starter, Haddocks. Haddocks got Maris to lift the ball into the roomy foul territory behind the plate, caught by Smith for the precious first out. But Mantle sent a curve into right to score Richardson and make it 9-8. And when Clemente scooped the ball to make a throw to keep the tying run at second, he didn't pick it up cleanly, so the slow-footed Long was able to get to third. Stengel had no remaining pinch runners except for pitchers, whom he had to save for who knew how many innings still to play. But the powerful Barra, already with a three-run homer in the game, was a good bet to solve that problem for his manager. Haddocks understood that too, working carefully and falling behind with ball one and ball two. On the third pitch, Barra hit a smash on one hop to Nelson, who, holding Mantle, was perfectly placed to glove the rocket. It was a series-ending double-play ball until Nelson's instincts failed him. He immediately stepped on first, taking off the force at second. Mantle had a split second to decide whether to try to get into a rundown long enough to score long or take his chances diving back into first. Nelson put his glove down on the right field side. Mantle dove to the left and had his hand on the base before being tagged on the leg as Long crossed the plate with a tying run. First base umpire Nestor Chilak's safe call was emphatic. Mantle's successful gamble had sucked the air out of the stadium like a giant vacuum. Behind the plate, Smith's shoulders slumped. At 9-9, his home run had become an afterthought. Grote made an excellent stab in the hole on Scourin's grounder to get a force at second and end the inning. Mazeroski rolled the ball to the mound and ran to the dugout thinking, those Yankees are going to do it again. So lost was he in his thoughts, mostly negative, that coach Lenny Levy had to remind the second baseman he was the leadoff batter. Murtaugh, as always, was unflappable. He said to Maz, need one to go home. And the crowd seemed to put its pain aside applauding as Mazeroski stepped in. Having chided himself for hitting into that double play in the seventh, he thought, don't overswing this time. The pitcher's turn at bat had not come up in the ninth, so Stengel did not have to make a change. Ralph Terry threw ball one high. Catcher Blanchard was mindful of the scattering reports, pegging Mazeroski a high ball hitter. Blanchard walked 20 feet towards the mound, and snapped his return throw to Terry. The pitcher shook off two signs and settled on a slider. Chuck Thompson made the radio call. Well, a little while ago when we mentioned uh, that this one uh, in typical fashion was going right to the wire, little did we know. Mark Dittmar throws. Here's a swing and a high fly ball going deep. Maz wasn't sure off the bat and thought at best he had hit the ivy. Barra said it grazed the top of the wall on the way out. When Mazeroski saw the ball leave, he took off his batting cap and began windmilling as he went from second to third. By the time he rounded third, 
Maz had become the Pied Piper of Pittsburgh. Half the city seemed to chase him home. Both umpire Joukowsky and the ever-observant Stengel waited just outside the mob at home to make sure Mazeroski touched the plate before blending into the delirious mob. The heartbroken Yankees became part of that throng as they made their way to their clubhouse, accessible only through the pirate dugout. This roar threatened to last until Christmas, so Thompson reopened his mic and said, Ladies and gentlemen, Mazeroski has hit a one nothing pitch over the left field fence at Forbes Field to win the 1960 World Series for the Pittsburgh Pirates by a score of 10 to nothing. Once again, that final score, the Pittsburgh Pirates, the 1960 World Champions, defeat the New York Yankees, the Pirates 10, and the Yankees 9. Played in just two hours and 36 minutes without a single strikeout, Game 7 and a World Series had ended almost before everyone could catch their breath from the multiple twists, turns, and ironies. Never before had a World Series ended on a home run. The shy hero, Mazeroski, shed no light on what went through his mind when he realized he had won what may have been the most compelling game in baseball history. He told reporters, I was too happy to think. No championship trophy yet existed to be presented on the field, so fans quickly poured into the streets around Forbes Field and all over western Pennsylvania. In the clubhouse, Stewart was taking special glee in dousing teammates, reporters, team owners, and politicians with champagne. Big Stu took up a chant of Pirate's Power. Laughed the upstage but exhilarated Smith. We don't have any power, remember? Simoli sprayed and slurped champagne. Then he leaped onto the stand where Prince was conducting live interviews for NBC and said, You can't beat these big bad buckos. No, sir. No, sir. We got them. We got them. They broke all the records, and we won the games. New Yorkers remember the 60 World Series as being lost by a crazy hop and by Stengel's bad judgment for not starting Ford in three of the games. Dick Grote has been asked if that perception bothered him. Not at all, says the National League Most Valuable Player for 1960. Grote says, We won. Every game we had a chance to win, we did. In Game 7, coming from behind, we won that World Series exactly the way we did all year. The stats all favored the Yankees. 55-27 to 27 in runs, 91-60 to 60 in hits, 10-4 to 4 in homers, and 338 as a team to Pittsburgh's 255. The Pirates' ERA of 7-11 remains the highest in series history for either a winner or loser. Richardson was named MVP, but that was little consolation to he and the Yankees. Mantle went into the training room and cried. Said Mantle later, we knew we should have won. Stengel instantly agreed, saying, the infielders and outfielders fought like hell to come back and win this one, and those guys with the ball let it get away. They were told not to throw high to those hitters. Maybe they'll learn their lesson someday. The manager called Terry to his office, wanting to know if he had pitched Mazeroski high in defiance of the scouting reports. Terry said no. 
He had been struggling with a mound that had a different taper than the one in the bullpen. Stengel said, forget it, kid. Come back and have a good year next year. Five days later, Stengel was fired. But Terry won 16 games in 1961 for new manager Ralph Houck. Maris broke Babe Ruth's single-season home run record with 61, and Mantle hit 54. In the series, New York overpowered the Cincinnati Reds in five games. In 1962, when the Yankees won again, Terry shut out the Giants 1-0 in Game 7. In 1961, Law was limited to just 10 starts by a sore arm, and the Pirates plummeted to 6th place. But Brown kept the lineup and pitching staff intact for 1962, and Pittsburgh won 93 games, only two fewer than in 1960. But that was good for only 4th place. The Pirates won World Series championships in 1971 and 79 with thrilling comebacks. But even in a city where the beloved Steelers have won six Super Bowls and the Penguins five Stanley Cups, Mazeroski's home run is still considered the city's top athletic moment. Every October 13th, fans gather at the Forbes Field wall, the remnant of the park raised in 1971, to listen to a recording of the broadcast starting exactly at 1 p.m., ending at 3.36 p.m. Clemente had no crystal ball to forecast such an everlasting impact. But even at age 26 in 1960, he was wise enough to savor the triumph for the city. Once dressed, Roberto went outside Forbes Field to share his joy with the fans. Later, he reported, I did not feel like a player. I felt like one of those persons, and I walked the streets among them. By 9 p.m., downtown was jammed with 300,000 celebrants, forcing police to close the Fort Pitt and Liberty Tunnels to incoming traffic. Decades later, Detroit columnist Joe Falls recalled the walk back to his hotel. I saw a celebration in the streets that has never been matched in all the years that followed. The paper was knee-deep in places. It was almost impossible to walk. The celebration around Forbes Field had largely moved elsewhere when Mazeroski kissed his bat for photographers for the last time, then went into Shenley Park beyond the left field wall with his wife Mylene to enjoy his inner peace and some quiet. He later told author Jim O'Brien, There was nobody there, not a car, not a soul. It was so quiet that even the squirrels had disappeared. Maybe they were out celebrating. As years passed, multiple opportunists tried to sell Maz what they claimed to be the home run ball. But nobody ever presented a verifiable claim, and besides, Mazeroski wasn't interested. Mazeroski was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2001, largely on the strength of his brilliant glove at second base. But the last sentence of his plaque at Cooperstown reads, His dramatic home run in Game 7 at Forbes Field propelled the Pirates to the 1960 World Championship. When I hit it, 
I didn't know for sure if it was going out. I didn't know, you know, it's 410 feet out there and I hit it good. And I knew, I knew when I hit it that Yogi wasn't going to catch it, but I didn't know if it was going out or not. I heard the noise of people yelling. I looked down the left field line and the umpire's giving it this shot. And then I hit second and I don't think I touched first or touched the ground the rest of the way home. I just floated home. <laughs> All I could think about is we beat the Yankees. We beat the Yankees. We beat the great Yankees. Thanks for listening to that championship season. Our show was produced by me, Steve Morantz. Special thanks to longtime friend Jay Greenberg, who researched and wrote the script about the 1960 Pirates. You can read more of Jay's great work in his book, The Philadelphia Flyers at 50. To find more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, championshipseasonpodcast.com. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, which really helps people find it. You can also find the show at virtually anywhere else you find podcasts. We'll be back soon with another tale from that championship season. <laughs>